risk. Risk is our business. That's what this podcast is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll once again hear Cindy Freeman and John LaSala. Hey folks, this is John. And this is Cindy. And on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Bella Clark. My mental health was declining. My dreams were getting worse and worse. We're not doing too much about that. But yet this weird turn of events occurred where now all of our conversations were about aliens. But first, a quick reminder, head on over to risk-show.com slash best of risk to vote for your favorite stories from the past half year. The best of risk number 27 is coming up soon. And today, Tuesday, March 14th at noon, we're closing the polls and choosing the stories. So review the stories and let us know your recent favorites. You can even leave a voice message over there telling us why your favorite story is your favorite story. And we may just include it on the episode. That is all at risk-show.com slash best of risk. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They came from beyond space to enslave the Earth. Look out! Suddenly, they're dehumanized, blood-chilling hate robots, killer creatures determined to destroy Earth. We can now proceed with the next part of our plan. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and it looks like we didn't get enough UFO-themed disco in the last episode, so here we go again. Oh, and it looks like my ride is here again. Cindy and John, you can take it from here! Well, there he goes again. He's missing another good one. He's gone. <laughs> oh, boy. But we are here with something super special. I'm very excited. So, you know, this is part two. So this is Close Encounters of the second part. And today we are going to be listening to Bella Clark. So a little backstory on Bella. Bella originally pitched this story back in 2021 as a spooky light Halloween story about something that she saw. And it was obvious to me that there was a big impact here and it was more than just a story of something strange in the night sky. And so uh, we worked together and as we unpacked it, it just became obvious that there is so much here that it became almost impossible to tell it. She could truly write a wonderful book of her experiences, but that's not quite what we do at risk. We look for small, concise stories that can be shared in an episode. And so the question is, where should we focus? And we weren't sure, so we were taking a break when you introduced me to David Halpern and we started working on his story. And there were so many parallels that it became obvious, what about having David's story be sort of the thing to compare her story to as a way to center where we're going to focus? But I really don't want to say more other than this is a conversation. The story itself is mostly Bella, but it's a conversation. David is there listening and asking some questions. Yes. And stick around until after the story to hear more of a freewheeling conversation between Bella, David, and Cindy chiming in, Mm -hmm. discussing various topics that came out of both of their stories. And if you're hearing this on Patreon, you'll have the director's cut of that conversation with a much more succinct version on our regular podcast feed. Anyway, without further ado, here's Bella Clark telling David Halperin and me a story we call, I Want to Believe. Cindy, I am just so excited and so privileged to be here. And Bella, I cannot wait to hear your story. Okay, well, um, let me just first start. You're just like the most amazing storyteller. And you did say something that really struck out to me. You said, sometimes you have an illusion, you don't recognize it as an illusion until it explodes and you feel the pain of it. And that just really hit me because I kind of feel like I've had that realization myself in my own story when it comes to this crazy paranormal experience I've had and how it relates in the rest of my life and how to make sense of it. I feel like I never really did make sense of it. So I'm still kind of continuously feeling the pain of it throughout the rest of my life. But another thing that I just think is so fascinating is you as a young man were this UFO investigator and you so much wanted to see one and you you put on your coat and your boots and went out with your <laughs> with your writing instruments and you were ready to go and um, you turned into a skeptic over time 
And I also kind of felt that as I aged, that it's something that I slowly stopped believing in. But yet the difference for me is that I saw something never wanting to, and then Mm. I have to live the rest of my life kind of reconciling with it. So we're kind of symmetrical then. You saw it without wanting to, and (laughs) I wanted to without seeing. Yeah, absolutely. That's So it's such an interesting parallel and... I know that your story started when you're about 16 and 17, and that really plays into mine as well. It's such a pivotal age, just kind of reconcile with something like this. But my story really started when I was 11. My family moved into a property that we lovingly called the River House. It was such a luxurious property. Looking back, it was this brick ranch-style home, and it had everything a child could want growing up. It had a pool where we would play mermaids and then it had a wooded area where we could play manhunt. And um, (laughs) the one really defining feature of this home was that it had this really long boardwalk that led to a gazebo in the woods and then another long boardwalk that led out to a deep waterfront dock. So the river house sat on this massive channel. It was brackish water and you could go out and I mean, I think the channel was like 40 feet deep at one point. It was built for cargo ships to move. So I spent a lot of time out there with my brother and with my mom and my dad. So we are the small, nucleated family. When we moved there, my brother and I befriended our next-door neighbor, who we called Nana. She kind of became a grandmother figure to us, and she had a grandson. And every summer, he would come and live with her. And his name was Brennan. He was your good old kind of country boy. He taught us how to fish. He was big into hunting. We lived in South Georgia. So it was truly kind of the boonies. Um, So he kind of grew up in this seeped little environment of Southern culture. And my brother and I, we spent our summers out with Brennan fishing and being kids. And it was such a lovely way to grow up. And Ella, if you don't mind my asking, what about yeah. what date was this? What year? Yeah. Oh, it was in the early 2000s. This started when I was 11, so. And this was before my brother and I were ever allowed a cell phone. <laughs> so I never knew what day it was, uh, never knew what time it was. And I was also homeschooled. My mother homeschooled my brother and I. But really the moment that I want to dive into is when I was maybe about 13. It was an average night. My friend Brennan was next door and my brother was here. So we went out and decided to go catfishing. Catfish fishing is just kind of a hurry up and wait sport. You just cast your lines out really, really far into the deepest part of the river possible. You set them up and you sit down. (laughs) And you just sit for a long time and gaze at the little tip of the, the rod and wait for a nibble. So it was a really peaceful night. We were all kind of sitting alone in our thoughts. I was also thinking about what Christmas presents Santa would bring me that year. So I was a little bit too old to be believing in Santa, but um, that's one of those homeschooling traits. Uh, We got to, yeah, like I said, be kids for a long time. So it was, I remember a, a very beautiful, calm night, clear skies, the river was glassy. There was a fog hovering over the water. Usually on nights like that, you could hear owls 
kind of hooting back and forth to one another across the river, or you could hear ducks and geese and crickets and even fish crusting over the water. And there was just none of that this night, so it was eerily quiet and peaceful. And then all at once, we all noticed a light rise up maybe about four miles down the river over the horizon of the forest. It wasn't something we took much notice of because there was a lot of air traffic in that area. There was a, a military base close by, so we knew that they would do tests every once in a while. You'd hear those crazy jets that would just shake the windows of the buildings. And then there are also a couple of these semi-aquatic, like amphibious planes that people would drive over the river and then land on the water. So air traffic is a normal thing to see. But, you know, we weren't really doing much except sitting around and waiting. So we watched as it came up slowly and it was this kind of yellowish white light. And then it made a very sharp 90 degree turn towards the left. Still didn't think too much of it. Uh, we all kind of concluded amongst ourselves, it's a helicopter. Helicopters are really the only things that can make that kind of a sharp turn. But you know how you see planes in the air and it's always a bit deceiving, you know, directionality and stuff. So sitting around, waiting, waiting, waiting. We noticed the light kept coming a little bit closer and a little bit closer and we realized it was coming towards our direction. We didn't hear anything. It, it, there's this kind of weird unsettling feeling that started in my stomach as it came closer and closer and we expected to hear the helicopter blades and we just never heard anything. I started to feel a bit uneasy. It came closer and closer and then we could ever so make out this silhouette. That's when I really got scared. I booked it by myself up the dock onto land and I turned around and looked back at my brother and Brennan and I was like, why aren't they coming with me? I am terrified. I know they're terrified. We need to get the heck out of here. And they were frozen in their fear. And I had this moment where I can either run away by myself, run back home and be a coward, and then also just be alone in the face of this thing that's coming upon us that we didn't recognize. Or I could go back on the dock and be with the people that I love and trusted and sit it out together. So I ran back out on the dock. We each grabbed each other's hands and huddled, formed this tiny little knot of each other in the very far corner of the dock and crouched down. And I remember feeling their gloved hands just like digging into my gloved hands. And just the terror was unimaginable. I don't know if I've ever felt that kind of fear before unless I was getting into a car accident or something. Like the impending doom of it was surreal. Eventually, this craft just cruised ever so silently right upon us to the point where our heads were back, our chins were to the sky, and we were gazing up at this thing's underbelly. It was maybe the distance of two, three-story building above our heads. So it was not far away. It felt like it blocked the entire sky. It was humongous. And I really remember just feeling the silence. It glided so effortlessly. And I felt this deep thrum, like you're listening to bass too loud, but it was constant. 
Looking back, I'm not sure if it was coming from this craft or it was just coming from inside me and like the terror of it all and the anxiety if I was just physically shaking so much that I felt that deep within me. But as far as what this thing looked like, it was triangular. It was a matte gray and it was not smooth. It was not shiny. To me, it looked like someone tore open a bunch of computers, smashed it up and then glued the remains onto a surface. It looked complicated, it looked mechanical. Like it should make sense, it made no sense to me, of course. And then someone just spray painted it matte silver. So it looked like a hot mess. And then around the perimeter of the craft were large circular lights, maybe a yellowish white tint. And then there were these little, I would say like satellite antenna kind of poking off the perimeter of it as well, and they each had two-tone blinking lights. That's what it looked like, and I have it kind of seared in my memory. Clear as day, crisp, I could transport myself back to that night within a second. I don't quite remember it drifting down the rest of the river, but I do remember it just kind of followed the path of the river, like it was just cruising along following the flow of water. After a moment, we each got up and ran our little butts over back to my house, busted open the door, and just were screaming, Mom, Mom, you will not believe what we just saw. My mom was up at the computer. I remember feeling surprised that she was even awake at this point. And she turned around and was just baffled, like, what the hell just happened? Why are these kids coming in my house screaming? And she listened to us, made us feel validated, she had me draw it. I'm an artist, so she was like, make sure you draw it so you'll always remember it. And then that was kind of that. The years went by. Every once in a while, as our friendship kind of drifted with Brennan, he would come over and as we got to like the teenage years, he'd, we'd sit together and he'd say, oh, remember that night? Remember that thing that we saw? I still haven't told a single person. I know no one would believe me, but I know you guys do. And it's just this moment we all share. It's not something I can gaslight myself into believing it never happened. It 100% happened. It was surreal, but it felt so real. We were right directly underneath it. And it's kind of this life-changing thing to see, but yet you must continue on <laughs> with your life. What can you do with this kind of information? I just saw something terribly unexplainable that probably came from another planet. There's nothing like it I've ever seen in my life before and nothing I've seen it afterwards. So life continued on and my mom, she always validated these sorts of stories. My mom was kind of interested in new age things, a little bit on the fringe. We didn't grow up in a religious household yet she homeschooled us and we loved it for the most part. We traveled around a lot. She was able to really nitpick the things that we would be educated by. And she was this fabulous researcher, really put her heart and soul into making sure my brother and I had the best education we could and supplemented that with traveling and going on field trips and seeing history and really fostered my love of science and history. At the same time, she believed in some things that were really on the fringe. So I always grew up believing in spirit guides. I grew up believing in past lives. I grew up with this kind of almost pagan spiritualism. 
you know, I always thought it was wholesome and she would do these really lovely things that made me feel just so special. She would sit me down and she would tell me, I think you have a whole array of spirit guides at your disposal that are just watching you. I think they're ascended masters. I think you're going to do something to change the world. And I'm so proud and honored that you chose me to be your mom. And she had this really uncanny, powerful knack to make you feel like you were the entire world and she was just basking in it. Yeah. Wow. She was very, very good at that. At the same time, she was very good at bringing you down. Hmm. I never knew how my mom was going to be. She's a very powerful woman. In my home, in my nuclear family, lived by the motto, if mom's not happy, no one's happy. Mm. And it was so true. We joked about it all the time, but oh gosh, was it ever true. When my brother and I did something to disappoint her, she would kind of sequester herself in her room for days at a time. Mm. And she would play this Olympic sport of, of the silent treatment, would walk around the house and literally, literally pretend we weren't there. Mm. Like her gaze would just skip right over you. She'd watch TV and ignore you. And that was, you know, really disheartening. She had really poor mental health mm. when we lived at the River House. My dad was always gone. He is a captain of privately chartered yachts. So he would go out on these trips up and down the coast, captaining these yachts. So he'd be gone for long periods of time. So my mom, looking back, was a very lonely woman. And so it was just my mom, my brother and I, we were homeschooled. It fostered a hugely codependent relationship. My relationship with my mom and my brother was full of tension. And so I became this peacemaker and kind of therapist for my mom mm. at an early age. And it all occurred at this river house. Mm. So you combine codependency, a mother who is lonely with a daughter who wants to help, and a mom who loves new age things. And yeah. as soon as I showed an interest in extraterrestrials, it was like, here's something we could connect on. Mm. Let's foster this. Let's build a relationship out of this. The years went on. Um, I was now at this point, maybe around 16. Our relationships had dissolved to the point I was not in the best mental health along with my mother. I started having severe night terrors. Mm. So debilitating, they would really affect my waking life. I would wake up because I was like, physically sobbing, mm. physically screaming. I would have to get up and take showers in the middle of the night because I would wake up just completely soaked to the bone. I remember laying down towels in my bed. So I'd have a dry surface mm. to lay down on and using towels as my blankets. It was just a bad time. It was a bad time. And I would categorize my dreams in kind of these three categories. One, really gory, horror, classic monster dreams, but uh, very heavy on the gore. Lots mm. of blood, lots of guts, that sort of thing, which were terrifying in their own right. But then the worst, I think, were kind of the emotional trauma dreams where I would try so hard to get my parents' attention and they'd ignore me and pretend I wasn't there. And just the frustration and the deep 
anxiety of it all. Those were the worst, for sure. Those were the worst. And then the third were extraterrestrial-based dreams. And they were also incredibly terrifying, but also sometimes not. So I'd have dreams where I was in rubble with my family. The world had collapsed and a UFO had risen in the sky and I would feel this sense of relief, like, ah, oh, they're coming to save me. And I'd pull my parents up by their elbows and say, don't worry, the world is <laughs> ending, but they're here for us. They're coming for us and I know them and they're gonna protect us and take care of us. Mm. Weird dreams like that, but then some of them were incredibly terrifying as well. But around the age of 16, I had this one that really, I think, changed the course of my relationship with my mother and really kind of set my world spinning. When I fell into my dream, I came out of it with this sense of I was seeing the world through a bit of a fog. And I was in this space that was totally unknown to me, but I was being led somewhere. And I had this notion that I was only being allowed to see what I was allowed to see. So my vision would clear for a moment and then go back to this fog. And I was led into this space where I was met by two individuals. I couldn't see them, but I got the impression that one of them was older, wiser, somehow of great importance. And the other one was younger. And I got the sense that this person was more of a peer of mine, in that somehow the older one was facilitating our introduction. And it's all, you know, feeling based. There was no words exchanged, but I remember very vividly feeling like this is important. I'm being told to pay attention to what's happening. And for whatever reason, this young individual and I are going to work together. And then the younger individual kind of took me by the hand and led me throughout what I would describe as like a grounds. I still had no concept of where I was. My vision would clear and then go foggy, clear and then go foggy. But I remember being kind of given a tour. And then eventually I was brought up to the secondary part of the grounds. It felt like there was a network of cages and I was being introduced to another kind of individual. This one was humongous. I remember feeling very small in comparison. And I remember seeing, being allowed to see this one very clearly. And it kind of lowered its head down to my level. And I have this very crisp image of just its face as my total center viewpoint. And it had these kind of stereotypical black almond eyes. And they were in these two sets, one right on top of each other and having this incredibly intense stare off, but I felt like it was staring into me, you know, very kind of classic what you would imagine having this kind of level of communication with this extraterrestrial, I guess you could say. But what really was interesting here and very kind of throw a wrench in it was this intense putrid odor that happened as soon as this thing kind of brought itself down to my level. I remember physically recoiling from the smell. It was as if someone had a decomposing matter right up under my nose. And I felt myself turning away and trying to be polite about it, but absolutely not being able to. It was horrible. 
Eventually, I woke up out of that dream feeling like something important had just happened. I felt like I hadn't slept. I felt very off kilter, like my brain was in a fog, which is how I usually felt when I woke out of a, a nightmare or a very surreal dream. But this one sat with me differently, like I must remember this. I got up, I went into the kitchen. My mom was awake. She was drinking her first cup of coffee. I sat down at the kitchen table and I just kind of put my head in my hands and she asked, hey, what's wrong? You know, I could tell something's up with you this morning. And I said, I just had the most bizarre dream. I feel like I need to remember it. I feel like something important happened in it and I can't put my finger on it. And she listened to me and made me feel like I was heard. And she asked me to describe the dream to her. So I did. And I always remember her staring at me very intently. And she put her head on her hand and she said, do you think you went somewhere last night? And it was very much this seed planted in my head that I might feel like I'm dreaming, but actually I'm physically being taken somewhere. That's what she was implying. And from then on, anytime I, ha I woke up, she'd ask me, what did you dream about? Were there any aliens in it? Do you feel like you, you left last night? I'd wake up exhausted from a dream that really had to do with my emotional trauma because of my family that really I should have been getting some help for, but she didn't really seem to care too much about those. <laughs> I didn't feel like I could share those, yeah. but yet yeah. as a kind of emotionally unavailable mom, anytime I would have a dream that centered around aliens, I would share with her and then it would foster a bond. And I felt like, this is a way my mom can pay attention to me mm. in a way that she would show love and interest in me. My mental health was declining. My dreams were getting worse and worse. We're not doing too much about that. But yet this weird turn of events occurred where now all of our conversations were about aliens. Mm -hmm. One night, my mom kind of like tossed me a book. I was laying in bed. And it was pretty unimportant, it seemed. But she said, here, I just read this book. I think it'd be interesting to you. Picked it up, and it was Whitley Strieber's Communion, which is... <laughs> you're laughing, and I know why you're laughing. It's, um, it, it's an interesting book. It's the stream of consciousness about a gentleman who's a writer who lived at a cabin in the woods. It was like a secondary home. And he started to experience paranormal activity and these little creatures that would come into his home at night and he'd feel very um, vulnerable. And essentially it told the story of how he started reconciling with the fact that he was being visited by aliens, he was being taken from home up into their spaceships and what the hell to do with that information. And I, when you said your mom gave you a book to read, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> Whitley Strieber's Communion. You got it. <laughs> Isn't it perfect? Um, I think it just was the book that I shouldn't have read at the wrong part of my life. So in that way, it was perfect. I was in bed. I was reading this book and this pit in my stomach just grew and grew and grew. It was doing like somersaults and I was just horribly relating to this book. And uh, it really made me scared. Um, there were certain lines in the book that I would 
just relate to the fear, the unknown, these kind of weird experiences of feeling like someone was watching you in bed and uh, sleep paralysis kind of sensations, then throw on top of it the dreams that I've been having and seeing a UFO, seeing one up that close. I suppose it's not too much of a stretch if you were to have this incredibly close encounter that it wouldn't go the extra step and that I would have actually been taken aboard and I would just have no memory of it. But one really key moment of that book was he was up in a spacecraft at some point and he commented about how horribly it smelled Mm. and how strange of a thing to kind of focus on. He described the odor of smelling like decomposition and how he couldn't get away from the smell. And that really sunk into me because that was something that couldn't make sense to me in my own dream that I had. So partially grasping at straws, but also partially, it felt incredibly, incredibly real and very scary at the time. So my mom and I continued down this path of being very, very connected over UFOs. And knowing that I was having these dreams, she, as the intelligent, research-based homeschooling mother she was, decided that she would find me a hypnotherapist. And (laughs) 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 she um, researched this one woman whose name's Dolores Cannon. My mom absolutely adored her books. She is this kind of spiritual leader with a bit of a cult following. She's a very prolific writer. She wrote about past life regressions, trauma healing, but also had this kind of secondary work. And it's about past life regressions with people who are interested in alien abductions and um, objectively very strange stuff. But my mom really latched into that, thought that's probably what was going on with me. And Dolores Cannon taught this very particular kind of hypnotherapy technique to other people across the country. And there's a network of these people trained in this technique. And my mom found one in a neighboring state. So she reached out to this woman. The woman agreed to hypnotize me. So we packed up, got in the car, took off for the state for me to be hypnotized. The drive was long. I was anxious the entire time. We made it. And this woman lived in a McMansion. It was huge, way too big for this woman who opened the door. She was this petite, maybe 70-year-old cotton top, grandmotherly (laughs) type. We all sat down together. It felt like I was sitting maybe like 10 feet away from my mother and another 10 feet away from this woman. And I was having to share with her why I thought I was being abducted by aliens, which as a 16-year-old is a very surreal experience. (laughs) she brought me back into this extra bedroom. I laid down. She turned the lights off. It took me a while for her to get me into that hypnosis state. Felt like I was underwater during this maybe 30-minute period of getting into that memory state. When I got to the point I felt like it wasn't working, it suddenly did, and I felt like my head popped out of that water. And then I was sitting on that dock in the river house. I could feel the wood underneath my feet. I could feel the chill in the air. I could see my breath. And I felt small like I was a child again. So I do remember it being vivid and real. And then I experienced 
seeing the UFO again, except this time I was taken aboard. I have a memory from the hypnosis of being up in the sky and looking down at my brother and at Brennan. And the fear was so intense, I thought I was going to die. And I said out loud, I know this is happening, but please can I take my brother? I don't want to do this alone. I don't think I can do this alone. I am so afraid. Please just take my brother so I can be with him. It went unheard, and then I was alone. I don't remember anything else. I can't say I want to. I do know I have recordings of it. I don't think I will ever listen to that. And then we left, went home. Uh, the ride was silent. I didn't want to share a damn thing. Mm. I was like, what the fuck just happened? I don't want to experience this anymore. I don't want to be in this headspace anymore. My relationship with my mom very much dissolved after that. The years went on. Her mental health got worse. Our codependency needed to break. Eventually I broke it, went no contact for a while moved out, went to college, moved to another state. She'll still kind of bring it up every once in a while, you know, like, have you seen any aliens recently? And I'm like, no, mom, I, <laughs> no. Our relationship is a lot better now. She actually got some help and we've been kind of fixing our relationship over the years. I had that moment, like you, David, where, you know, this just this illusion just totally blew up in my face. And I feel like it blew up my relationship with my mom because that's what we stood on. And when I stopped feeding her interest in living vicariously through me, it was like I no longer related to her. She no longer had an interest in me. And then I had to completely cut ties. And it was very painful. It's very hard to go no contact because I love my mom despite her peculiarities and um, the things that she did wrong as a parent, which were many. Hmm. I went to college, like I said, and I got two bachelor's degree in history and archaeology. I'm really into finding facts, funny enough. I ended up pursuing a career in forensic science. So I am currently a forensic investigator. So <laughs> I put on a coat, put on my boots, and I go out with writing utensils every day. I have a camera on me. I photograph. You know, it's so weird that I deal with what I can prove. You know, the burden of proof is something that's very heavy in forensic science. I don't like uncertainties. We cannot speculate. Mm. I have to reconcile that side of myself, the scientific brain, my livelihood, mm. with... What took up the majority of my youth, which is absolutely bizarre, unreconcilable, and you, you can't make sense of something like this. How do, you, how do you make sense of seeing a UFO up close like that, feeling like you're abducted or at risk of being abducted every night, and then going to see a hypnotherapist and having that kind of background, which hypnotherapy as well. We know in forensic science, you can have confirmation bias. You can be influenced by outside factors. I do know that the abduction experience in hypnotherapy can be very much manufactured, and yet you can still think it's real. So I'm aware of all of these things. But 
I also, to my young self, cannot push those feelings aside. I cannot devalue how I felt as a young person. And I know how real it felt. And I go back to that fear that I felt. And that's not something that I feel like you can fake. Mm. I worked on a horse farm for about five years before I got kind of my career in forensics going. And um, I lived out on this giant piece of property. And every night I would have to go out and put the horses to bed is what I would call it. It was very isolating, but very beautiful. The sky was very clear. You could see all the stars. It felt vast. I would often look up, would look to see if I could see something that would be a UFO. I think it's this ever lingering kind of longing to be validated again, to see something and be able to tell myself, oh yeah, it was real. I always wanted to have that kind of reminder that I wasn't crazy, that it can happen again. But at the same time, I hope I never see anything like it ever again. <laughs> I never want to. So it's this, this strange kind of push and pull inside of me. At the end of the day, I just want to feel validated and know that I'm not crazy. Wow. You are no mean storyteller yourself. I mean, I was absolutely captivated. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. I, I feel the, the parallels in our stories a lot. You know, kind of how they play into our, our backgrounds and how we each reconcile with how do... UFOs fit into our lives as complicated human beings, you know? And yes. I think in a lot of ways, we're not terribly different. <laughs> yes, I think, I mean, one of my convictions is that the UFO witness is a part of the sighting, that he or she is not simply somebody who happened to be in the right place at the right time, but is a part of that very mysterious dynamic of what's going on. It's very poetic. I um, 
I feel like I was in the right place at the right time to see that UFO. Yeah. Um, and despite all the craziness that followed, I still 100% believe that what I saw was real and infallible and absolutely not from this earth. You, you, speak, you, know? you speak of having you and Brennan having reminisced about it. Do you still see him and does he still talk about it? I think the last time I spoke with him, we were maybe 18. Uh, that was uh, basically the year we moved out of the river house. We had just grown apart as people. So every time we got together, it was longer and longer distances between one another. So, yeah. But each time when we would reminisce, we would bring it up. So one of us would bring it up in the natural lull of a conversation. There would always be the, but golly, don't you remember that night? Ah, oh, yeah, that was something, wasn't it? You know, it was just uh, kind of the natural thing that we would talk about. But I have not spoken to him in 10 plus years, maybe. What about your brother? Have you ever talked with him about that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. <laughs> we haven't talked about it lately. I mean, he has um, a little baby daughter and... Even my brother and I have grown apart over the years, just with the relationship that he had with my mom and the trauma of it all. We are very, very different people, but occasionally we'll bring it up. And um, he's still as resolute as I am that it happened. Mm. I just don't think he had the, the weird follow-up. He had moved out by the time my mom and I were in that kind of crazy relationship. He had had kind of enough of her, they they fought really badly. They're, they're cut from the same cloth, those two, my mom and my brother, makes them very strong, independent people, but they did not mix. So my brother kind of escaped when he turned 18. And so it left me alone with my mom, with an absent father. And so that really, you know, made the perfect little, little situation for codependency, so. And your yeah. father was quite oblivious to everything that was going on. Yeah, for the most part. Um, I think he was aware to a degree, but he just chose not to be involved. Mom's not happy, no one's happy. And in order to make her happy, we all had to play along. And he very much facilitated that yeah. play alongness. Just, oh, well, you know your mom. You know how she can get, you know, that yeah. kind of mentality. So he wasn't someone I could go and say, Dad, help, you know? It wasn't that kind of a situation at all. I felt like I had nowhere to go, unfortunately. Mm. But it's okay. Well, when John and Cindy gave me a very brief sketch of your experience, my mind at once went back to the granddaddy of UFO encounters, which is the prophet Ezekiel's vision of whatever it may have been which he says that one, as I was among the captives by the river Kavar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And then it all unfolds while he's by the river. Mm. And mm -hmm. he, he sees a wind. And this was actually my sort of proto-UFO experience, a proto-encounter with UFOs when I was Five years old, we had moved out of my grandmother's house in Trenton, New Jersey. So I spent that first summer reading the Bible. <laughs> I remember going to my mother and saying, 
there's something in the Bible that scared me about a great wind coming out of the north. And this was, this was Ezekiel's vision, which he had by that river. Oh. And then later on, when I discovered UFOs, I realized that people connected that river with the UFOs. You know, it's interesting that you kind of bring up the tie between religion and UFOs. Yeah. Because a lot of times I felt like it was something religious my mom and I were exploring. And in part of that, I also thought getting ready for college that I wanted to be involved in religious studies. I was so interested in anthropology and how people formed their belief systems. <laughs> and I too found really interesting all the the origin stories of things that people saw flying in the sky during history and um you know i kind of got into the early concepts of i guess the beginnings of ancient aliens and how could potentially extraterrestrials had influenced early human cultures mm. you know so it's just that's another part of my life that i just think is really funny how um the existence of extraterrestrials became a bit of a religion. Yeah. It's definitely something I felt. Or there's an alternative, which is the one that I would advocate, is that we're dealing with something that eludes our classifications and that every culture pigeonholes it according to the belief systems of that culture. To Ezekiel, it was visions of God. Mm. To us, it's alien spaceships because... Yep. If we experience something that we feel strongly is alien, the only pigeonhole that we've got in our conceptual world for aliens is outer space. We don't seriously believe in angels anymore. And if we do, they're sort of just like glorified human beings in nightshirts. But yeah. But that something that is genuinely alien, as I think Ezekiel encountered, and I suspect you and your brother and Brennan encountered, the only way we can pigeonhole it, the only model we can use to interpret it is to say what well, must be from outer space. Yep. You mentioned that you made drawings of the UFO not long after the experience. Do you still have those drawings? Oh boy, do I wish I did. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> do I, mean, I wish I, you did too. Yeah, I certainly probably could. I mean, it's seared in my memory. I could very easily draw it, you know, but I, Do you think your mother has them? It was a giant triangle. No, if we had talked about it, you know, before, like, eh, whatever happened to that? I think at that time it wasn't as, you know, deeply serious. It was just um, three 11-year-olds coming in, screaming their heads off that they just saw something unexplainable. Oh, why don't you just draw it for a second and tell me what you thought? And then that piece of paper got recycled immediately after. Mm. You know, I'm for me, it's a, I was thinking what might be nice is, is, you know, there is no resolution for seeing things that you don't understand, you know, and that's sort of the soup where you live. And I think it's like, how do you, I'm curious about, and, and David, you know, with all of the research you've done, like, how does one live in a world where there is no clear idea of what happened? You know, how do you live with the, with the mystery of all of that? 
I think you put it in a box and you don't look at it. <laughs> it's, you know, I, how can you? You just have to keep on mm-hmm. and um, think about it when you're feeling introspective and just kind of have to go, huh, and then continue living. I mean, otherwise, how do you pay bills? Mm-hmm. Take your dogs to the vet. You know, go have a coffee in a cafe while you're thinking about aliens and UFOs and did they come for me? I mean, they just, they're not compatible. Mm. They're not compatible kind of frames of headspace. So you just set it aside and in moments of introspection, take a look. Mm. And yet you do, I mean, if you're someone like me who's not been an experiencer and yet takes these experiences very seriously, you perhaps file them away and say there are things we do not yet understand about not so much the universe, I think, not so much the universe out there, but the universe in here. The universe in... I realize nobody can see me make that gesture. The universe universe inside our skulls, which I think has more mystery and more alienness Mm. than any galaxy. There's so much we don't understand. Yeah. I'm kind of happy putting a tabs on my experience as just something that I don't understand, probably will never understand. I think a lot of us probably have that too, especially if you experience some like family trauma or Mm -hmm. something like that. It's just, it happened and you heal and you move on. Mm -hmm. I think in, in this sort of situation, it's similar. You just recognize it, respect that it happened, and you just continue on. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's so many things that happen to us all, whether we crave the closure, you know, as I imagine you out there in the horse farm craving and not wanting at the same time because you want that closure. And so many things in life, you never do get that closure. You know, that friend that abandoned you or that job that you lost or that opportunity that almost happened and what if and more traumatic things of if this had been diagnosed earlier or or whatever you know these things that just sort of you don't get the closure on and i think the point is to figure out that's part of the human experience is living with things that you never will fully understand absolutely well put it's exactly it it's <laughs> exactly it Bella, it's an honor to have met you and an honor to have heard your story. Thank you. And likewise, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about this and a pleasure to hear your story. I think we're very similar people. I bet if you had met as kids, you would have been very good friends. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) The ufologist and the experiencer. Yeah. We'll start our own X-Files. Far beyond the world I've known Far beyond my time What am I? Who am I? What will I be? Where am I going? And what will I see? Searching my mind For some truth to reveal What thoughts are fantasy? What memories real? This is Risk, 
And this is Suspension, the song version of the theme from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. We have just listened to Bella Clark along with David Helprin and myself. And remember, if you are one of our Patreon patrons, you'll have heard a more in-depth version of that conversation, including talk about the Nordic space angels known as the Palladians. Of course, you can find that version of this episode all the while helping keep Risk running at patreon.com slash risk. Where am I going and what will I Ah, that would be Kevin. Hey, Kevin, you must be back to uh, rest control of this podcast out of our uh, irresponsible hands, huh? Yep, that's him all right. Hi, Kevin. Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just keep floating off in UFOs, but it's great to be back once again. You know, after these close encounters I've been having, I've been thinking I would love to have a close encounters of the third part yes. episode sometime. If anyone out there would like to pitch us your stories mm-hmm. about these sorts of encounters at mm. risk-show.com slash submissions. And it's the last chance for you to vote for your recent favorite stories for our next best of risk episode at risk-show.com slash best of risk. Until then, remember, today's the day. Take Take a a risk. That's what I call a close encounter.